It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to another exciting edition of Rico Bronia. Another edition of Rico Bronia where Carlos Correa is still not a New York Met. It really is incredible. I, I thought that this would, you know, finally wrap up at some point. But now we're entering deep into the first week of January. We're in a brand new year. And there is still radio silence around Carlos Correa. In fact, The only piece of news, and I wouldn't even call it news, I'd say the only piece of rumblings we heard about Carlos Correa twofold. Number one, Ken Rosenthal offering his thoughts on his podcast, The Athletic, and then Carlos Correa putting out an Instagram picture of him and his, I forgot, son or daughter, I I don't recall. I'm sorry, son. It's his son. Son, my apologies. Wearing an I Love New York shirt in which Carlos says, I'm going to work, which we all took. I know Hoff took it as a sign of don't worry. I'm a Met. (laughs) Isn't that how we all took that shirt in that Instagram post? Well, yeah, because the kid's wearing a I. Well, it's like a hot dog pretzel and why. So unless he's like going to have like a lunch, it's I I love New York. And it's what's happening, bro. It's what? No, no, I agree with you. I am not negative about this. I think it's going to get done. And it's odd because the Mets, specifically Steve Cohen, made it clear he wanted Carlos Correa. And I think Carlos Correa has made it clear he wants the Mets. So it's this weird negotiation where both sides want each other. It doesn't appear like there's any games being played where Correa is going to bring up, hey, I could go back to Minnesota. Or the Mets are going to bring up, ah, we love Eduardo Escobar and Brabati. Like, they both want each other. So I think what sucks for us as fans is just waiting through the process and you know, checking Twitter and refreshing and seeing how this thing's going to end. But I agree with you. I have no reason to believe that this thing is going to fall apart, that Correa wants the Mets, the Mets want Correa, and it's just about waiting for this thing to get done. So the one thing that I keep on seeing, because Rosenthal had a very telling quote. He says that, you know, it, it seems like there's going to be a lot, though, things will change. It's not going to be the 12-year, right. 315 guaranteed and a lot of people take away that guaranteed part of the, of that quote i still think it's going to be closer to the 12 years 315 i just don't think the money's gonna be guaranteed i think there's gonna be a lot of clauses in there does that make sense or no yeah i completely agree with you like if i had to predict right now okay so you both think as in you and i both think correa ends up with the mets they work a deal out we both agree with that what's our prediction on what the contract looks like i don't know if Ken Rosenthal misspoke or maybe he's just wrong because he's been wrong before. I guess right now it's the same 12 years, 315. I think the only difference is there's going to be a lot of legalese and a lot of protections around if an ankle injury 
cost him time on the injured list. Uh, the guarantees of that money, if an ankle injury leads to him missing significant amount of time, that's what I, if I had to predict, I, I don't have any inside knowledge on this. I'm just using my best to guess and we'll all hold ourselves accountable. Either I'll be right. I'll be wrong. He'll be right. He'll be wrong. I don't know. We'll find out. But I actually heard that because I went back and listened to his pod just to hear, okay, what's he saying? And he said, the contract's going to look dramatically different. And I this I don't think it will. I, I really don't. I, I think it's going to be the same 12 year, 300 plus million dollar deal. I just think there's going to be a lot of protections in it in case the ankle causes him to miss significant time. That's my guess. I think that makes the most sense, and I agree. Which That's why a lot of people used in his quote, but taking the word guaranteed out, and that changes everything. I think the money just won't be guaranteed, which is why you'll have those clauses in there, which makes a ton of sense. There's a reason why this is taking so long. You know, If this was simply, hey, we're changing the contract, let's figure out a new amount of years and a new amount of money, I think a thing like that gets done quicker. And then maybe you also use other teams as leverage. The fact it's taking so long leads me to think it's just a complicated kind of contract that, yeah, the 12 years, 315 is the same, but it's going to be complicated based on, all right, does this count as an ankle injury? How much time does he have to miss? What is guaranteed? What's not guaranteed? The Mets need to be smart about this. As much as we all want Correa, as much as we all think this makes the Mets a better team, you can't be stupid. And just because you have a lot of money and Steve Cohen is clearly showing he does, doesn't mean you just give out a crazy contract and say, ah, whatever, year seven, we'll figure it out. What was interesting on Wednesday, and I kept an eye on this because he was always a a really intriguing target for next year if things didn't work out with Correa, was Rafael Devers. Rafael Devers and the Red Sox agreed on a long-term extension. Carlos Baerga, of all people, had it first. 11 years, $300-plus million. And, And number one, good for the Red Sox. Let's just start there. They... They needed to sign him. They let Xander Bogarts walk away. They traded Mookie Betts. The Red Sox have become like this Fugazi big market team. So for them to take care of Rafael Devers, who's so young, you forget how young he still is. Like that 11-year contract only takes him until he's 36, which is a reasonable age. Great job by the Red Sox. I commend them. They should have signed him. For the good of baseball, I'm glad they did. But he was one of those guys (laughs) that we all looked at. And said, not for a trade, because I never thought the Red Sox would trade him. I just didn't think they would do it. I think they wanted to sign him. So if anything, it would just get to free agency next year. But as a free agent target next year, he was the guy I looked at and said, boy, we strike out on Otani. You go get Rafael Devers. Now, obviously, signing Correa changes that. You're not signing Rafael Devers. Uh, but with the Correa thing still in a little bit of limbo, you, know, you glance over at Boston. You see what's going on with Devers. But they obviously locked him up to an 11-year contract. I also thought, not Met-related, that would have been the perfect guy for the Yankees to remind their fan base who the hell they are if they went out and post Rafael Devers. Now, that is that left-handed bat, third base, Donaldson's contract off the books. I was saying this to every Yankee fan friend I know. That's the guy. <laughs> I, know, I know it's waiting a year, obviously, but that's gone. The Red Sox took care of business. They took care of him. Uh, One other thing about Rosenthal's podcast, he mentioned that once the Mets get this Correa thing done, which he expects will get done, that they would move on to other things pretty quickly, including trading Eduardo Escobar. So here's the way I view this. And I think we as Met fans are going to be lockstep in this. I can't tell Steve Cohen 
that the payroll needs to be $800 million. Like, I understand that at some point there's a budget. And adding Carlos Correa is such a shocking development and such a great development, I think, makes the Mets a better team, that if the fallout is you want to clear money by trading Eduardo Escobar, it's very difficult for me and Pete to yell about that. You know, it, it just is, and I admit that. With that said, I really don't have a lot of interest in trading Eduardo Escobar. Again, if you're telling me, come on, Ev, come on, Pete, don't be pigs. Look at the luxury tax. Look at the payroll. I get it. I I cannot scream and yell that you need to spend more, Steve. Hold on to Escobar. But I, and obviously with trades, you got to tell me what you're getting back. But I wouldn't do a James McCann kind of deal where the Mets basically said, we're just going to save any amount of money we can. We'll pick up 75% of this contract. Let's just rid ourselves of James McCann. I think Eduardo Escobar is a valuable piece. And even in a world in which Correa is healthy and Lindor is healthy, I still think you can find a lot of playing time for Eduardo Escobar. And we've talked about this briefly on past Ricos, whether it's playing second base and Jeff McNeil playing the outfield, whether it's Escobar being a DH option, especially as a right-hand hitter where he was real good. I think the Mets are a really deep team. And Eduardo Escobar being on the roster is a good thing. So my reaction to the idea of trading him, it's not anger because we really can't be angry about it, but I don't love it. I'm not in any rush to trade Eduardo Escobar. Are you? No, not at all. And I think you nailed it. The versatility about Eduardo Escobar is fantastic. I still think that you can give all these guys close to 350, 400 at-bats. I know there's a lot of guys to deal with, but between Alvarez, Escobar, Canna, uh, you know, some even like not Vientos, but Beatty, you'll be able to give them 300 to 400 at-bats each. And with Escobar, he showed he's powerful from the right hand right inside of the plate so like that's key you need a right hand dh that's a guy you could use you're telling me that darren ruff who's still currently on this team and i understand he may in the long run he may be gone but who's more valuable eduardo escobar or darren ruff i take eduardo escobar any day of the week yeah no it's not even close and i don't think darren ruff's going to be on this team so i don't look at it as oh they're trading escobar darren ruff's going to be that right-handed dh i think ruff's gone too I think there's a chance that as much as Steve Cohen is spending, he is probably saying, all right, let's lower this a little bit and let's give some young players an opportunity. You know, Brett Beatty is not going to be traded, in my opinion. Like, I don't see, you know, I'm not talking about the trade deadline. I'm talking about now, this offseason going into the year. Brett Beatty's on this team. Brett Beatty's going to have a chance to play, whether it's left field, whether it's DH, like you mentioned, whether it's days Carlos Correa doesn't play. Like, Carlos is not going to play 160 games, nor should he. In this age of baseball, you know, I've always said this about the NBA. It's all about winning a championship. So if you're going to sit your best elite NBA-level players, I always got it. Like, I was always a supporter of the maintenance day. Well, in baseball, where 150 teams are making the playoffs, you have to be smart. Like, I, I, I have now moved into that category because the game has changed. I haven't changed. The game changed. I didn't. It wasn't me. <laughs> it was the sport. So Brett Beatty's going to get a chance to play. And I think to your point, Eduardo Escobar would get a chance to play. Um, if you're getting back, so here are the hypotheticals with trades. That's why it's always so weird to talk about, would you trade Eduardo Escobar? Well, what am I getting? You know what I mean? Like, 
I hear rumors Detroit. If I'm getting Gregory Soto, am I into it? Yeah. Even if I'm getting a good prospect, like a solid prospect, am I into it? I'm thinking about it. Because even though that hurts you maybe in the short term, hey, getting a pretty good prospect for Eduardo Escobar, I mean, okay, that's not the worst thing in the world. So I admit that saying I would trade a guy or not trade a guy, it's an open-ended thing. You have to know who you're getting back. I'm just saying that this lineup is deeper if Eduardo Escobar is there. And like you said, Pete, there's a role for him. You know, just because Carlos Correa is the third baseman and we had all penciled in Eduardo Escobar as a third baseman doesn't mean, oh, he don't have a shot anymore. There are plenty of ways to get at bats. And I laid out a few examples, whether it's McNeil playing in the outfield and Escobar playing second, whether it's the DH spot, which is still very wide open. You know, who is the DH for the New York Mets? I know Daniel Vogelbach is here and Brett Beatty is here and Vientos is an option and Alvarez is an option. But we don't know of all those billions of options Who's getting a chance to play? And I love depth. In the game of baseball, where there are going to be injuries, where there are going to be days where you sit, guys, depth is a good thing. So I'm not going to scream and yell about it if it's about money because, again, Steve is spending a lot of money, and we'll have to see what they get back in a trade. But off the top, I would be more on the side of keeping Eduardo Escobar than aggressively looking to trade him. That's how I view it. I, I 100% agree. And again, like Soto's a name that's that's sexy. And that's the thing is, I think Escobar does have a lot of value because he's making, what, $9 million one year. You can cut the deal at the end of the year. I know he's got a op- club option next year, but that doesn't have to be a guarantee. So there's teams that probably, like, look, Detroit does need a third base. There are teams that need a third base. So it does make a ton of sense for teams to want him. Doesn't mean we have to give him up. Yeah, it's certainly not a McCann situation. The Mets had to give away James McCann. The Mets basically said, we will pay for 75%. That's what they did of his contract. Please take the man off of our roster. And all of us rejoiced. All of us celebrated that decision. The Mets also signed TJ McFarlane to a minor league contract. Left-handed reliever has been around for a long time. We'll get a spring training invite. Doesn't strike out a lot of guys. Gets a lot of soft contact. Gets a lot of ground balls. Doesn't walk a lot of guys. I throw them in the mix of the many, many relievers that you bring into spring training and you give them a look-see. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, The other thing, and this is going to be our main subject today, Dom Smith signed with the Nationals. Now, is that our main subject of the day, that Dom Smith is a National? Not necessarily. But Pete Hoffman texted me something that I have received. I have received this text for years after different guys have left. And that is, 
Dom Smith's going to kill us. I'll never forget. And this is not an example where a guy did kill us. Luis Castillo, after being cut by the Mets, signed with the Philadelphia Phillies. And Joe and I took calls and I received tons of text messages from friends. Luis Castillo's going to kill the Mets. And I remember doing a little bit of a tirade saying, you know what, guys? I'm as negative a Met fan as anybody. Not everybody comes back and kills us. And Luis Castillo never came. I don't know if he ever played a game for the Phillies. I forget. I'm not sure if he did. But he never came back and killed us. Will Dom Smith come back and kill us? It's absolutely on the table. I like Dom Smith. Was it time for him to go here? Absolutely. Sometimes it's just time to move on. But just because it's time to move on with somebody, and we all agree, hey, time to move on, doesn't make it that he won't come back and kill us. So today on the Rico, thanks to Pete, Pete really inspired this because he said, you know what, Evan, we should talk about all the former Mets that have come back and killed the Mets. And I said, you're right, we should. Because let's preemptively strike against what Dom Smith is going to do to us. But I actually want to start, and I have a list. I have a list. I have two categories, by the way. The former Mets that came back and killed us, which is obvious. And then I I thought this was interesting. This was a wrinkle to it. The guys who killed us before they became Mets and then became Mets. And they did whatever. You know, we'll get into that. So we've got two categories. But when I said we all pretty much agreed it was time to move on from Dom Smith, it actually reminds me of somebody. And this should scare the crap out of all of us. We all agreed. And most of us as Met fans, we don't all agree on anything. But we all agreed that it was time to say goodbye to Travis Darnot. We did. Let's not lie. Pete, don't lie to me. You were done with Travis Darnot. Is that a fair statement? A thousand percent. I used to have conversations with Bob Huster telling him that Darnot, Darnold, 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 Jesus. Travis Darnot is old terrible and we need to say goodbye to him he's injury prone he's wasted gone he needs to be gone forever and and look other than 2015 where when darno played in 67 games he was very very productive and was the catcher for a team that won the pennant pete's right he barely played in 2017 when he did he sucked he missed virtually all of 2018 and when he came back in 2019 in which he was already done as a starting catcher Travis Darnot went two for 23. I'll do the math for you. That's a batting average of 087. And we were all done. I mean, we were all absolutely done with this guy because, A, he was making a handful of, he was making a few million dollars. And they had already signed Wilson Ramos, who at the time, 31 years old, much better offensive player. He was already just such a huge upgrade over Travis Darnot. So we all agreed. Like, it was not a debatable thing. You got to get rid of Travis Darno. Travis Darno, that son of a bitch, has not only turned into an elite-level defensive catcher, and this isn't about, like, this podcast is not about guys who just turned out to be great. It's about guys who killed the freaking Mets. But I'm just adding color to this, that, yes, Darno has turned into a really good starting catcher in baseball. But I present to you Travis Darno. He has played 22 games against the New York Mets since leaving, mostly now with the Atlanta Braves. He has hit 325, far above his career average. He's hit four home runs and 77 at-bats with 20 RBIs. 20 RBIs in 22 games. 
You could do the math. It's a lot of freaking RBIs. He has a 960 OPS. So forget about what he's become. Because he's become a very good player, like I said. Look what he's done to us. He has seen us and has pissed all over us. He has destroyed us. And yet, can we really be annoyed? We all wanted him gone. And I don't want to see, I know I'm going to get an email at the Rico B at gmail.com. Evan, I didn't want to get rid of him. I knew Wilson Ramos was a fat ass. I needed Darno. It, it, stop. We all were done with him. I'll give you another guy we were all done with. Angel Pagan. We were all done with him. So when he goes to San Francisco and is a productive player, you, like we can bitch just about our lives as Met fans, but we can't bitch that. we. Can you believe it? We, we got rid of him. We didn't want him anymore. Those numbers I just gave you for Darno, expect it from Dominic Smith. Expect it. All right. Let me ask you a question, Pete, because I, I have the answer, and I was sort of surprised by this. Of all the former Mets, and, and, I, and when we're done with this, obviously feel free to tweet at us or email us because I'm sure there are guys that we missed. Like, I'd be the first one to tell you. This is through my brain, Pete's brain, research. There's going to be some guys where I'm like, oh, crap, I forgot about this guy. But who do you think is the ultimate Met returnee killer? And there's two guys. One is obvious, which we can get to and get it out of the way. And one who I bet you don't realize. Go ahead. I mean, the first one is Daniel Murphy. I mean, he destroyed. Yes. He, beat the, but he beat the piss out of us. He beat the piss out of us. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, we, we could spend all day on this. Uh, we've talked about Daniel Murphy. We've talked about the decision. Daniel Murphy hit 355 with 12 home runs and 44 RBIs in 52 games with a 1,061 OPS. But specifically in his first year, he left us in 2016. He assaulted us like no one else. He made Chipper Jones look like a wuss. Let's be honest. He made Derek Jeter look like he was a fraud. Like Daniel Murphy just did stuff to us that's illegal in 35 (laughs) states. So... Yeah, I mean, we could spend all day on this. I don't think it's worth it. We all know the brilliance of Daniel Murphy against the Mets. Okay, so let me take a random guess at the other guy. I want to say Ty Wigginton. Ty Wigginton. That's interesting. I didn't even look up Ty Wigginton's numbers. Now I'm kind of curious how he did against us. But no, it's not Ty Wigginton. But I'll tell you this. This guy who I'm about to name had a very solid major league career. The most home runs he hit against any team was the New York Mets. The most RBIs he had against any team were the New York Mets. And what's fascinating about it is he didn't play the most games against the Mets. So it's not as if, oh, yeah, he has those records because he just faced the Mets all the time. I think he faced like four or five teams more than he faced the Mets. So before I get to this guy, I do want to explain we cannot bitch about this. I want to make that very clear. Because the guy I'm about to mention was a part of one of the greatest trades in the history of the New York Mets. And we gave him up. So we have to be fair about this. I'm going to give you the numbers. They may be surprising. Uh, Maybe there aren't defining moments of him assaulting us with these numbers, but he did it. And that guy is Preston Wilson. That's right, Preston Wilson in the Mike Piazza trade. So I... (laughs) What are we going to do? We're going to bitch about that? And I think we've talked about Preston on a recent podcast where we said, eh, it's kind of sucked. I think we talked about him on the, the podcast where we talked about losing your favorite player. 
trading away a favorite player. And we had somebody mention, hey, you know, Preston Wilson, I, he was a prospect. He was Mookie's son. I wanted that guy to be a star with us. And he had a really solid major league career. But the Mets traded him for Mike Piazza. So you can't get nuts about it. But listen to these numbers, dude. These are crazy. 86 games, so a little bit more than half a season. He hit 277. He had 23 home runs, 61 RBIs, a 900 OPS. Most home runs against any team, Preston Wilson against the Mets. Most RBIs against any team, Preston Wilson against the Mets. Here's what I think saves this. Because when I look this up, I didn't remember him assaulting us that much. But what I did remember was him failing against us. Because Preston Wilson played for the 2006 St. Louis Cardinals. And he was on that team. And I remember thinking throughout that NLCS, he's going to kill us. This is going to be the guy to kill us. Logically, that's the guy. And he did nothing in that series. The Mets did a great job against him. He was only three for 17 in that series. So maybe what kind of softens this is that there aren't these epic moments of Preston Wilson doing anything against the Mets. He played for the Rockies. He played for the Marlins. Like there's, I mentioned the Cardinals, but again, didn't do anything in that NLCS. So maybe what softens it about him is that despite those really good numbers that you can't dispute, like he didn't break our hearts. Now, there weren't many moments that we cite over and over again the way we could with a guy like Daniel Murphy. And maybe the other thing is also we understood why he wasn't a Matt. Like it made complete sense why they traded him. But yeah, statistically, bro, he's as good as it gets. Yeah, I do remember Preston Wilson beating the crap out of us too. Now that you remind me, I mean, because he, again, he was somebody that was involved in such a big trade. Again, highlighted player, the background. Whenever he came around, that's the thing is, whenever you see these names pop up and they come back to play the Mets, it's always like I want to see how he's doing. And sometimes, like Preston Wilson, they remind us how they maybe could have done for us. Yeah, it's it sucks, man. Like Preston Wilson's one of those guys where it would have been cool if he was a Met. But when you have a chance to get Mike Piazza, you're just you're signing the deal. And he was the only guy in the Piazza trade that really turned out to be anything. Uh, memory serves correct. Ed Yarnell was in that trade, who never really turned into anything. Jeff Getz never made the major leagues. He was in that trade. Um, he was the one guy, and he turned into a really good player. But I think all of us would agree Mike Piazza uh, was pretty good. By the way, Mike Piazza's on this list. And I need to address this because I think this is also fascinating. Mike Piazza is on both lists. Mike Piazza killed the Mets as an L.A. Dodger. Killed him. You know, it just was great. Maybe that's a part of why we wanted him so badly. And then when he left after the 2005 season, he killed the Mets again. Remember, he hit those two home runs in his return to Shea Stadium as a Padre. And it's a very small sample size. I do admit that. But in the five games Mike Piazza played against the Mets after he was no longer a Met, it was also washed up. He wasn't the same guy. He was five for 18 with three home runs and a 1,128 OPS. Small sample size, I admit, but picked up where he left off because before he became a Met, he was 11 for 34, which is a 350 batting average. So Piazza is one of those guys that fits. He killed the Mets before he got here. And he killed the Mets after he was gone. I'll tell you this much. I would have taken those after numbers from Darren Ruff last year. That's for sure. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so 
I, I did not realize this, and this is before my time. This is before Pete's time, but I think it deserves mention because these numbers are maybe on a level of Daniel Murphy absurd. Dave Kingman was a Met twice. Uh, Dave Kingman was traded the same day Tom Seaver was traded. So he was a part of that exodus in the late 70s. And he spent a couple of years with the Chicago Cubs and then eventually came back to the Mets in the early 80s. In the three years between, 1978 to 1980. Dude, these numbers, I'm telling you right now, I want everybody to pay attention. I don't care if you don't remember Dave Kingman, never heard of Dave Kingman. He put up numbers that, I'm telling you, make Daniel Murphy blush. The Mets sucked. We weren't around, so it doesn't have the same impact. He played 39 games against the Mets between 1978 and 1980. In those 39 games, he hit 19 home runs. 19 home runs in 39 games. That's a home run every other game. In a 162-game season, that's 81 home runs. So he hit 19 home runs in 39 games. He hit 385, and he drove in 51 runs. What? Like, Dave Kingman doesn't hit 385 in anything. Like, he hit a lot of home runs. He was never a high average guy. Dave Kingman, for three years while the Mets were bad, between 78 and 1980, put up numbers that are video game-like. And to put it in perspective, Daniel Murphy played in 13 more games against the Mets than Dave Kingman. Dave Kingman hit seven more home runs, drove in seven more runs, and had a batting average that was 30 points higher. Dave Kingman, statistically, may be the greatest Met killer of all time. But again, it's different. And I acknowledge that. That's why Daniel Murphy still has the uh, the mantelpiece. <laughs> because Dave Kingman wasn't on a team that won the World Series and was the or got to the World Series and was on an NLCS MVP and then was left to let to let go the following year. That's the difference. But now question, did you ever again, I don't know and I definitely didn't see those ha- that happen, but like did Kingman have something against when he got traded from the Mets? Was he upset? Was there like an uproar? Like Murphy seemed like he had it in against the Mets and was like, wanted to like say F you. Right. So what I would say is Dave Kingman was a miserable human being. At least that's what I heard. So I don't think he was generally a happy guy. (laughs) And maybe he was upset that he was traded on the same day Tom Seaver was traded and it didn't get any publicity. June 15th, 1977. Is it remembered for the Dave Kingman trade? It's remembered for the Tom Seaver trade. And remember, they brought him back. Like, right after this. The Mets acquired him in 1981. So, he's gone. He's, you know, bouncing around Major League Baseball, specifically during that time period. He's with the Chicago Cubs, where he's putting these numbers up. And then he he comes back. And, I mean... You know, hit some home runs, but was not quite the guy he was in Chicago and what he was doing against the Mets. So I don't know if it was a personal vendetta. It may have just been the Mets sucked and he beat up on their crappy pitching. That may have been a part of it. Uh, One guy that's very important to bring up because I would not be doing my job is Rico Bronia. Because (laughs) Rico knows it. We had Rico on a couple of months ago. And I remember bringing it up to him like, dude, you killed the Mets when they first let you go. And he's like, yeah, I was pissed. So Rico certainly had a vendetta against the Mets in his first 10 games in 1997, in the 10 games in 1997, 
when he was facing the Mets for the first time after they had traded him to the Phillies, he hit 412 with two home runs and four RBIs. So he was killing it. And overall, his numbers were pretty good. Solid. Like, they weren't absurd, but they were solid. He started off as a Met killer and then cooled off a little bit. 47 games, 273, eight home runs, 25 RBIs, 800 OPS. Rico, very good Met killer. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. A couple of guys I got to get to because it's mostly the playoffs that make them Met killers. And they're both similar in that they turned into really good players after the Mets let them go and looks like major, major mistakes. Let's start with Justin Turner. Justin Turner and letting him go was just, it made no sense. You know, I, that, that one still bothers me. It actually, in a weird way, bothers me more than the Kent one because I understood why they traded Jeff Kent. Like, I, I never thought, not that I thought Turner would be a star, but I think with Kent, it was like, eh, it's over. It's not working here. They were getting a former all-star in Carlos Baerga. Like, I'd lie to you if I said I knew in the moment that was a stupid trade. I never thought it was going to work with Jeff Kent in New York. Now, Kent took Joe and I and straightened us out a few years later when he said, I love New York. I was made to play there. I didn't think that at the time. The the reason the Turner thing pisses me off is that the Mets non-tendered him. They didn't trade him. They didn't get something back that didn't work out, which is what happened with Kent. They non-tendered him. And there were rumors at the time that the reason for the non-tender were crazy. Like, oh, Justin Turner likes to have a beer once in a while. But what? What are you doing? And I never thought Turner would be a star, but I always thought of him as a really useful baseball player. And I didn't want to give him away. So no, I didn't think Justin Turner would turn into a star, but I thought, hey, that's a that's a winning ball player. That's a guy I want on my team. And to lose him for nothing always bothered me. His numbers in the regular season against the Mets are very good. Not absurd, they're very good. Uh, fifth highest OPS against any team, it's against the Mets. A little under 900, which is pretty damn good. 276, nine home runs, 25 RBIs, totally fine. But the reason he's on this list was the Mets won the NLDS in 2015. So when you win, you get to write the story. You get to remember what you want to remember. In that series, that son of a bitch would not make an out. And it's easy to forget that now because the Mets won the series and they moved on. But Justin Turner was 10 for 19 in those five games with four RBIs. And every time he came up, I got a stomachache. Every time he came up and was hitting line drives back up the middle, it was very tough to watch. So I put Turner on this list, not necessarily because of the regular season numbers, but because of how ridiculous he was in the postseason of 2015. And there's a very similar vein here. Jeff Kent. Jeff Kent, who obviously went on and turned into one of the great offensive second basemen of all time, his regular season numbers against the Mets, identical to Justin Turner. Played more games, but 282 average, a little bit higher. 14 home runs, 40 RBIs, 867 OPS. 
I wouldn't put him as a Met killer. I would put him as he represented what he became as a star player when facing the Mets. But here's why Jeff Kent's on the list. Justin Turner had one series against the Mets where they couldn't get him out. Do you recall that Jeff Kent did it twice? Now, again, the Mets won both series. So history's written by the winners. But in the 2000 National League Division Series against the San Francisco Giants, Jeff Kent and that beautiful mustache went six for 16. But that's nothing compared to what he did in 06. 06 NLDS, Met sweep. So again, who cares? Jeff Kent was an absurd, wait for it, eight for 13. Eight for 13? He didn't make a goddamn out. Eight for 13 with a home run and two RBIs. So Jeff Kent and Justin Turner are on this list of former Met to become Met killers, not because of what happened in their career and not because of what they did in the regular season, but all of them put together had, let's add this up, 10 for 19, 8 for 13, 6 for 16, 24 hits, 21 for 47. (laughs) That's like a 440 batting average. That's stupid. That's so stupid. And again, you're talking about two guys where, again, I, I mean, maybe not Justin Turner so much. Again, you liked him. I wasn't so much. But Jeff Kent, like, I, I don't know many people that said I needed to see Jeff Kent leave. I, I was not one of those people that want him to go. So I wasn't like, oh, that makes so much sense. Let's get Carlos Baerga to come in here. I wasn't feeling that at all. So I'll tell you this real quick about that. When the trade came down in the years before baseball reference and the internet and all that, When it came out, I heard it, of course, on WFAN, I was ecstatic. I was like, oh, my God. And I loved Jeff Kent at the time, but my thought was, I can't believe the Mets just traded for Carlos Baerga. I can't believe they just traded for this three-time All-Star. This is unbelievable. This guy's a monster. This guy's a machine. I remember Francesa always used to say, Baerga's a hit machine. Oh, that's what he is. He's a hit machine. He's a hit machine. So they make the trade. I'm really excited. And my dad and I run to Baseball Weekly because we used to get the Baseball Weekly magazine. And we open it up to see what his numbers look like. You know, because again, it's such a different world. We're not watching these games on the MLB package. We get Baseball Weekly once a week. We could see the statistics. And so in my mind, I am so excited, Pete. 12-year-old Evan. Oh, my God. We got Carlos Baerga. He's an all-star. He's a hit machine. And we race open and we open up Baseball Weekly. And I'll never forget when I saw his stats. I said, Dad, what the hell is this? I open it up, and Bayerg is hitting 267 <laughs> with like a 300 on base, with 10 home runs, 55 RBIs, like very pedestrian. This is a guy who drove in 100 runs. This is a guy who, as a Cleveland Indian at the time, was a 300 hitter. And I'm looking at these numbers saying, What's this? <laughs> and that's how different, you know, our information was back then. You know, we're not able to watch the games all the time. The only stats we get is looking at the newspaper. And I remember getting a little bit of a stomach ache saying, oh, what's, what are we doing? And I thought I thought this guy was good. Backfired already. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, dude, it's sort, it's sort of crazy to think that that's how it worked. And it wasn't. That's just the way it was. And. 
Yeah, he kind of knew right away, maybe this guy isn't the same. And, and clearly it led to his demise. He was only 27 years old, but something was up. And the Cleveland Indians knew it at the time. It's part of why they traded him. Well, ho- hopefully it's not an ankle issue. Well, hopefully it wasn't an ankle <laughs> issue. Put that way. I think it was being a fat ass issue. I think that was the problem. <laughs> uh, let me get to a couple of pitchers because uh, one guy kind of fits the whole Justin Turner, Jeff Kent thing. A little bit before our time, but it definitely deserves credit. And that's Mike Scott. Mike Scott was a Met, and he was a crappy Met. Mike Scott, as a New York Met, was 14-27 and 27 with a 4.64 ERA. And the Mets got rid of him, and he became a Houston Astro and didn't kill the Mets in the regular season. His career numbers against the Mets are very, very pedestrian. But Mike Scott in 1986 became a monster. He blossomed into a really good pitcher, a top-notch pitcher in Major League Baseball. We now know he was probably scuffing the ball. Maybe at the time we knew he was scuffing the ball. But the reason Mike Scott makes this list is, of course, the National League Championship Series of 1986, in which he made two starts against the Mets and very close to making a third. Part of the drama of Game 6 of the NLCS in 86 was the prospect of facing Mike Scott for a third time. Because in the two starts Mike Scott made against his former team in the NLCS, he pitched 18 innings, two starts, 18 innings. He allowed one run. He struck out 19 guys and walked one. He was 2-0 with a 0.50 ERA. He was the definition of a Met killer come postseason time. And I guess what's different about the Justin Turner and the um, uh, Jeff Kent thing is that when you think back to the 86 NLCS, you think of Mike Scott if you're a Met fan. It's easy to forget about Justin Turner. It's easy to forget about Jeff Kent. Mike Scott was the reason why the Astros had a chance. And let's not forget this. Mike Scott did something in 1986 that was remarkable. Besides winning the Cy Young, besides pitching a no-hitter that clinched the Astros, the National League West, Mike Scott was so dominant in that NLCS that no Met won the NLCS MVP. It was Mike Scott who won the NLCS MVP even though they lost in six because, well, he made two starts and he pitched 18 innings and allowed one run. That is, look, his career is what it is. He really only had that one dominant season. He had some other good years, don't get me wrong, but that was the dominant season. But to do it against the Mets and to do it that dominantly against the Mets, he's the pitcher. He's the guy you put at the top of the list. But there are a couple of other guys Pitching-wise, that should not be surprises. Tom Seaver killed the Mets. And I don't know if Met fans of an older generation think of him that way. They think of Tom Seaver as the franchise, as one of the greatest Mets of all time. But Tom Seaver made 11 starts against the Mets, and he pitched to a 2.28 ERA, which even for Seaver, as great as he was, is incredibly low. In fact, that's the third lowest ERA he had against any team. Not a surprise. Seaver was pissed off. And the Mets were bad. So you combine those two things, you get great numbers. Another guy who's a legend, Nolan Ryan. Nolan Ryan made 20 starts against his former team, the New York Mets, and he pitched to a 2.47 ERA, well below his career ERA mark, and that was the fourth lowest in his career. Another guy who was great against the Mets as a reliever was Tug McGraw, now with the Philadelphia Phillies. He pitched to a 2.39 ERA against the Mets. But I got one that may surprise you. And we jump back to our era. So we may remember it. Do you remember how dominant 
and I'll give you the numbers to back this up. Armando Benitez was against the Mets after he joined the Florida Marlins. He, I mean, you think he killed us when he was the Met closer. When he was closing out games, he was ridiculous. Now, eventually the Mets got to him. So what I did is I pulled his first 15 appearances against the Mets. Because after that, the Mets touched him up a little bit. No doubt about it. But in his first 15 appearances, do you remember this at all? How good Benitez was? Or does does that fade away a little bit? I I think the Marlins maybe. I mean, I see I remember him more of like uh, with the Yankees and stuff like that. He was with the the Yankees five minutes. And the Orioles too, though. I mean, yeah. That was before, though. That was yes, before. Yeah. I, so pro- I know a little, I remember a little bit about the Marlins, but I don't remember him killing us so much. So, so he did. I think a part of why it may be easy to forget is the Mets weren't good. Like this was not a peak Met team. It was 04, it was 05, and it was very briefly in 06 before the Mets finally got to him. And I'll touch on that in a second. So in 2004, he made 12 appearances against the Mets. He pitched 13 and a third innings, allowed one run had 10 save opportunities in one year, which is a very high number, 10 save opportunities. He was 10 for 10, 10 for 10, right off the top. In 2005, he only made two appearances against the Mets. He was two for two. In 2006, his first appearance against the Mets, he made a save. So he was 13 for 13 and allowed one run in 16 innings against the Mets. And it was deeply frustrating. I do vaguely remember a little bit of this. Because we wanted to kill him. We wanted to beat him. Now, this, this son of a bitch blew so many big games for us, and here we have a chance to stick it to him, and we never did. And when we finally did, and I was on the air that night. I was doing overnights back in the day in 2006, and it was such a huge topic. Armando Benitez gave up a game-tying home run to Lasting's Millage. And so we finally got to him. Uh, I was at the game. I was pumped up. It was like a drive to left field. I remember going nuts. Like, yeah, we, we got Benitez. Yeah, we finally got to him. Tied the game. Did not give the Mets the lead. Lasting's millage in running out to left field or right field was high-fiving the fans. Right field. Definitely right field. Right field? Were you there? Were you one of them? No, but I remember, dude, that home run will go down a legacy because so many people hated that moment of Lasting's millage. I'll never forget it. But the reason they hate it is because the Mets lost. Like, think about it. Millich hit a home run. He celebrated with the crowd. And it became a thing because they lost. If the Mets had won, everybody would love it. Sports is written by winners and losers. Kayvon Thibodeau did whatever you want to call it, inappropriate or great, a snow angel next to a broken down Nick Foles. If the Giants lose that game, Kayvon Thibodeau is ripped to shreds by every Giant fan. You win, you win by a lot, no problem. History is written by the winners. And I remember saying that that night on the fan. It's one of the overnight shows I I really vividly remember, which was, guys, if they win the game, you're loving it. And instead, ah, this kid, he doesn't get it. What's he doing? High-fiving people. Can you believe this? Crazy, crazy, crazy. But it was against Benitez, and the Mets lost the game. And it was not the Marlins at the time. I think it was with the Giants by this point. It was with San Francisco, if memory serves correct. 2006 was, yeah, definitely San Francisco. And I forget how they lost the game. I, I don't remember who gave it up. 
Uh, I could go back to my 2006 scorecard, but I'm not going to. Um, but that was it. Because after that, the Mets finally got to Benitez. But yeah, for his first uh, 15 appearances against the Mets, he was 13 for 13 in saves. How crazy is that? That's disgusting. I mean, that really is. And and curious, by the way, just to think back, Lacey's Millage, us killing him for doing that. I imagine what we would say, those people would say about uh, Edwin Diaz doing the uh, the trumpet as he walked in. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Think about that. Like, Think how things have changed in the past 20 years almost. I think a lot has changed, but the constant is winning. When you win, you get away with everything. When you lose, you're held accountable for everything. Uh, if the Giants beat the Packers in 2016 after appearing on the love boat, everybody loves the love boat. You know what I mean? Like things are just treated differently based on the results uh, of games. You know, Tony Romo going to Cabo. They lost. That's what made it a big deal. And so on a much smaller scale, the fact the Mets had lost that game made the Millage high fives a bad thing. So here are the guys. There are four guys I came up with that killed the Mets before they got here. And one of them, I, I get out of the way because he's an all-time great player. So of course he killed the Mets. He probably killed everybody. And that's the great Willie Mays. Willie Mays against the Mets in 146 games, hit 39 home runs, drove in 106 runs. Um, eighth most home runs against any team was against the Mets. But what's impressive about that is he played less games um, than everybody ahead. You know what I mean? So, like, his performance against the Mets was incredibly high. He hit more home runs in a fewer amount of games than all the teams he hit more home runs against. And obviously, Willie joined the Mets late in his career. He had his number retired finally. Uh, it doesn't really count, but I wanted to give him some credit. The other guy who was a Met killer was Gary Sheffield. And eventually he joined the Mets, even though many of us forget that. Hit his 500th home run with the Mets. Gary Sheffield in 131 games hit 322 with 30 home runs and 84 RBIs. The weirdest one is Joe Torrey. Now, Joe Torrey is not a Hall of Fame baseball player. He eventually got in the Hall of Fame, and he clearly deserves it. As a baseball player, he was very good, was short of the Hall of Fame. But against the Mets, he hit 316 in 200 games with 30 home runs and 117 RBIs. Absolute Met killer. But the other guy, this guy was such a Met killer. And it took the Mets a while before they finally beat him. And I remember Shea Stadium, he was with the Expos at the time. They finally got to him. And that was, of course, the great Pedro Martinez. Pedro Martinez against the Mets. And a lot of this is before he was Pedro Pedro. Because remember, a lot of Pedro's dominance, most of his dominance, was with the Red Sox, where he would face the Mets sparingly in interleague play. The Mets faced Pedro before he became Pedro. 12-3, and 2-2-1 ERA. Incredible numbers against the Mets. All-time pitching Met killer. And then obviously would later join the team and we could have our debates about what kind of bet he was. I already gave my opinion on the worst free agent podcast that we did. But those are the four guys that jump out at me as guys that killed the Mets before they got here. I'm sure that we missed somebody. So if we did, you can, of course, email B at gmail.com. But these are Met killers comprised of former New York Mets. And when we do this podcast in 10 years, again, Dom Smith may be the president of it. Who the hell knows what he's going to do with the Washington Nationals? But it's funny. When he signed with the Nationals, we all thought the same thing. Oh, crap. This guy's going to kill us.
<laughs> it goes through all of our minds. Oh, no, no, no doubt. And I got killed right away. People like, oh, no, it's not going to happen. But you talk about, we talked about Dom Smith for a long time about how there was so much potential. He needed everyday play. He was never going to get it here with the Mets. Pete Alonso outshined him, and rightfully so. He's going to get a chance to play almost every day. Now, listen, the good thing is they only play us 13 times this year rather than like 19. So I guess it won't be as bad. <laughs> yeah. And look, let it be a lesson of the 2006 NLDS and 2015 NLDS. A guy can kill you, but you can still beat them. You know, a guy could put up great numbers. I think what made the Murphy thing so difficult was Murphy wasn't just putting up huge numbers. The Mets weren't beating the Nationals, who won the division that year. And it felt like the difference between winning the division and not winning the division. But what we need to be, I guess, okay with with Dom is sort of what I mentioned earlier about Darno when we started this. It was time. It wasn't going to work here. Sometimes things don't work. Uh, so you just have to move on. And that's the way I look at it with Dom Smith. But there have been a lot of guys over the years, I mentioned Castile earlier, where you think they're going to kill you, and then they don't actually come back and kill you. So we'll see how the whole thing works out. We'll continue to keep an eye on the Carlos Correa thing. Hopefully there'll be a podcast soon in which we officially declare Carlos Correa a New York Met. Uh, and a couple of other things we'll get to in the next few weeks. We'll have a more intricate debate on Beltron. Uh, it has to happen. Beltron's eligible for the Hall of Fame. I don't think he's going to get in this time, but I do think Beltron is eventually going to be inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. And it's complicated for us because he should go in as a Met. And I don't know how disputable that is, but then that leads to further questions about how we handle it as Met fans. Does he get his number retired? Do we bring him back into the family? Are Met fans able to accept Carlos Beltran? We'll do that coming up. In the next few weeks on the Rico, we'll take a look at that Hall of Fame bout and how those guys did against the Mets and their histories with the Mets. Uh, so we certainly have a lot to do as well as this offseason continuing. And we march closer and closer to spring training, my favorite time of year. I didn't tell Pete we're going to do a podcast after every spring training game, analyzing all nine innings. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Dude, I was about to say, I don't even know where to start or end. <laughs> <laughs> my love of spring training has evolved over the years and we'll get to that as we get closer to it i used to just eat it up every inning scoring games and as time has gone on uh, i still love it but not to the level that let's say 15 year old evan loved it are you going to be at any spring training games probably not that that's also something you know i used to go every single year I used to go to four or five games every single year, spend some time down there. It is much more challenging now with a wife and kids. Like vacation time is very special, and I cannot use it at Port St. Lucie, Florida. You can't make it a work thing, though? Go out for oh, a week, go to Port St. Lucie, let's say, you know, do so a the, games here and there. The work aspect of it, it doesn't work because we're on the air during games. So I did that in 2020, right before the pandemic hit. And I remember when I got back, I said, I wasn't at spring training. Like, yeah, I interviewed players and we did some fun shows. We're on the air during game. Like, I'm not watching the games. We're doing a radio show. So the work aspect of it is very, very different. That's for sure. Uh, either way, we'll get closer to spring training and we'll talk about it. Lots of spring training <laughs> stories. You can email the pod, the Rico B at gmail.com. Obviously, tweet at Pete or tweet at me. And you can check off out with Tiki and Tierney during the week, me and Craig, 2 o'clock on the fan. We appreciate you listening and reviewing and commenting on the Rico Bronya. Mm-hmm.
We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times.